Hello, and welcome to another episode of Future Chat. I'm joined again by my valiant co-host, Mike Attrell, and our senior contributor, Nick Maddox. We are back for a second week in a row, which is kind of strange. Um, I think there might be something wrong with the space-time continuum. Nick, you um, did we talk last week about how you now are no longer week-to-week figuring out when your next shift is was i was i on last week yes yes you were i think this is like groundhog day yeah where we're just repeating the week again (laughs) um yeah well i mean i was never i was never scheduled well no there was only the one time that i was scheduled for this time slot but no i have a real a real not quite nine to five. It's second shift, so it's two thirty to eleven every day. But I have a real job, right? A, a I'm shift a big job. Boy. Yeah. Wait. See, is the shift job bad? Like the other one, or is this a shift job? I I don't know if you're familiar with the parlance, but like first shift is usually seven to three about, right. and um three to eleven is second shift. Okay. Wait. That makes sense. No. Yeah. Yeah, 3 to 11 and then 11 to 7 is third shift. Third shift is awful. <laughs> Do you have a rotating thing or are you always going to be second shift? No, I'm always second oh, shift. That's good. It's even like if you're on first shift, you have to work like every other Saturday or something like that. Oh, okay. But I don't have to cuz I'm on second shift. Nice. So, Nick, you're doing like a science job. I am. I do chemistry all day, every day. That's well. You make it sound less fun than I imagine <laughs> it to be. It's. I don't. I don't think either of you have worked this kind of job before. No. But it's a lot no. of. I mean, reaching back to humans need not apply. It's it's obvious that the job would become heavily automated. Yeah. And so what you do as a chemist becomes progressively less and less important. And you're just really trying to make sure the instruments are working. Okay. Not that that's any less, but yeah. Granted, like, no, but I mean, like the quality control aspect is still there and you need to understand what's going on to understand why the quality control needs to be the way it is. But right. It's still just, you could, I'm pretty sure that I could bring in Mike and within a couple days he'd be doing the job as well as I do. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> it sounds like you I shouldn't. Mean, <laughs> you don't <laughs> You don't have a four-year degree in chemistry, but I'm pretty sure I could get you doing the job as well as it needs to be done. Right. Huh. Needs to be done or should be done? <laughs> Both. That's a good question. Like... <clears throat> One of the things, because I really like where I'm working. I'm working at Fluid Life, incidentally, and they do, they take quality control very seriously, which is really, really good. So, like, the minimum standard is what needs to and should be done, Hmm. basically. In your specific case, not necessarily in every case. Yeah, but they also, like, they even go to the point where, like, if they see an instrument is starting to skew one way, they'll they'll start monitoring it and swapping things out as necessary. Right. And that's like, that's what should be done. Hmm. 
Well, you'd go through Sorry. regular calibration anyway, wouldn't you? Like scheduled type um, checks so and maintenance. Do you want to? Do you want to have a segment of the show where we talk about ISO seventeen zero two five? I do. I wouldn't mind that. Okay. Okay. So, because I've worked now in two labs that are ISO certified that way. So, when you're doing a run, <clears throat> so you're batching like it's usually at least thirty samples or something like that. I mean, at SGS and Fluid Life, it varies based on what exactly you're doing, but you can be doing a lot of tests. So you typically you typically do at least one blank every so many samples. Actually, no. Just as a control. Elsewhere. Yeah, you have, for every test, you'll have a quality control check and a blank and a duplicate. Mm. So... I mean, first thing in the morning, you also, you run all the necessary quality control checks just to make sure that the instrument is still working, but you can still do quality control checks and, uh, blanks and duplicates with every run just to make sure that it's being done properly. So, and this was the same at, um, SGS, you start every run with a blank. So something that should read, I mean, there's nothing in it, so it should read zero. Um, depending on the analysis you're doing, it doesn't have to read zero in all cases at the beginning of the run. Like it has to be within a certain amount. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, it's not going to be perfect every single time, but it should be reasonably close to zero. Um, and then you'll do a blank every 10, 15 samples or so, depending on what exactly you're doing. But You'll do that, and typically you'll do a quality control check at the beginning and end of the run. So that'll be some sort of sample which will regularly give you a specific result within a specific range. Um, And, I mean, I'm sure you all realize why that's important, but in case a listener doesn't, it's important that your instrument is delivering consistent Mm. results it is both accurate and precise. And then at the end of the run, you'll also do duplicates. So you're running the same sample twice and you should get the same result within a certain tolerance because if you don't, if you run something twice in a row and you don't get consistent results, something's probably wrong. But what I like about working in an ISO environment like that is especially with the automated record keeping that happens in the laboratory information management system Mm -hmm. or LIMS, um, you can actually, every single sample you run every day is traceable to like at least a couple quality control checks. And what, uh, what I also really like is that if a quality control check fails, every single sample that has been run since the last successful quality control check, the data is discarded and you have to rerun the data and you have to rerun those samples. Hmm. So regular control checks are good yeah. in that sense. Yeah. Like saves. <laughs> basically, yeah. That's exactly what yeah. it's like, actually. <laughs> but I mean, and I like that because 
you go back to the last time you know that it was working and you go, okay, well, we can't accept anything because it could have gone wrong at any point in that, in that area. And so I know that in some labs, they will kind of skirt that and try and work their way around it. But I was really pleased the first time I saw a quality control check fail at fluid life, not because it failed and I was like pleased about it, but my the guy training me said oh okay well you know that happens they do go out from time to time so we just have to rerun all those samples i was like we do i mean of course we do but we do and i don't think anyone had been so happy to see a failure right yeah so nick i have a a couple questions for you please rob you sound like you wanted to say something i'll let you say your thing first well, no, I just wanted to say, like, I'm sure they don't get many diehard scientists in there. So hearing someone that's like, ooh, a result that we didn't want, we have to start <laughs> over. You're like, you're actually all for scientific rigorousness. Yeah. I'm all about the rigor. Yeah. So, Nick, I have a couple questions related to the specific operations of what you're doing. So what type yes, of test, what type of testing is this? Um, Like, is it like optical not- or like I'm just trying to remember or... if I'm actually allowed to talk about it. It's fine if you don't. That was my original um, thought too. <laughs> I wonder. We do. I'm trying to think what I know I can tell you about. How about you, you oh. say it and then Rob will just bleep it out on the broadcast. <laughs> That's not a good idea. Actually, one, <laughs> one test that I think I, I'm pretty sure I'm allowed to talk about is Crackle. Because it's actually like, it's it's a really interesting method. Are you familiar with ASTM methods at all? I don't know what that acronym means. Uh, American Science Technical. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, um, that one. <laughs> yeah, that one. ASTM. Those are very, very well-defined methods. And like, if you deviate from it at all, you have to have a well-published reason why you're deviating from anything to do with the ASTM to the point where like with some of our tests, ASTM will even say um, like it should take about this long to run a sample. And because like we have auto samplers in the lab, we have to publish a reason. This is, Oh, we have an auto sampler. So it actually takes less time for us to do this because you don't have a, clumsy monkey with a pipette in his hands doing the analysis right actually i can say i do a lot of ftir i'm not going to say why we do ftir but people can infer why we should both be unsurprised and baffled at what that means (laughs) what 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 does ftir mean fourier transform infrared spectroscopy okay I figured the FT was Fourier transform. I didn't know what the other ones yeah. were. I actually, I kind of guess IR was infrared as well. So <laughs> yeah. I guess I did no. know. Well, now you know. <laughs> um, but the one that we do that doesn't have an ASTM method, it's all based on one paper, is Crackle. And it's, you put oil on something hot and watch for water bubbles to come out. Would you say you listen for crackles? Uh, you can. There's not always... There's not always a crackle, but, uh, yeah, apparently it's from a 1995 paper that was put out and it's kind of neat because it's more subjective and yeah. So what are the implications if a test 
is done, but the results are invalid, but it goes through anyway. Is this like a batch of whatever will just be contaminated or just not like, react sorry, properly? Sorry, in what the... sense? So, again, this is maybe going into the realm of not being allowed to talk about it, but <laughs> say you let you let through a sample that is not up to spec as far as the components that it's supposed to be, right? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Is someone going to die because of that if that gets through? Because you're saying some you're saying some labs skirt these quality control things, right? Um, I mean, it depends on the analysis being done. Like, usually, what'll happen is if something has gone out with improper QCs, uh, like if you're in a good lab, that shouldn't happen because the software literally won't let you report something without, you know, a proper sample having been right. run. Um. But I mean, it depends on what you're running. Like if it's an environmental sample and somehow it's come in on the good end of things when it shouldn't have, you could have problems there. Um, I know one story from, I think it was friend of the show, Carolyn. They sent a sample away to be analyzed by like Mass Becker, basically something they couldn't be bothered doing themselves for whatever mm-hmm. reason. It was just going to be faster slash easier for them to do it that way. Um, they sent away a sample and the grad student doing it realized they made a mistake after having sent away the sample. So they they had said like, you know, the molecular percentages would be weight rather than mole or something like that because it's a mistake that's really easy yeah. to make. So when you send away a lot of samples, you'll have an expected range for each thing to be in. And he was, he or she was obviously going to be off. And they were like, oh, well, they'll figure it out because they're running the analysis. And then it came back in the expected ranges. Uh Uh-oh. And they just looked at it one. So we're never using this service again. (laughs) I don't think. Huh. Like, did they call them on it? it? I don't know. I don't know the end of that story. Yeah, I, I heard that story too, but I don't remember if anything happened from it. I don't think I don't think you'd have to call the lab out. You'd just be like, yeah, so never using them again because yeah. that's how quality works. Mm-hmm. But say if you're the manager of that lab and you don't realize that your people are putting samples through improperly, wouldn't you want to know like have someone say, "Hey, we got the sample back from you guys." And Mike, what if it is the manager that's well, causing the problem? That's an even bigger issue. <laughs> yeah they they do um, they do have audits, which I've never been present for. But actually, our VP of lab something operations, he actually is an auditor in his spare time. He goes oh. out and does ISO audits for other labs. Hmm. But so like they'll just pick a random sample and say, show me all the quality control checks that were necessary to do this. Right. That's cool. Hmm. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm glad you're liking the new digs because you have earned it. I'm all about quality. <laughs> I can tell your, your Pokemon game has, uh, has been affected slightly, at least as far as the Slack would suggest. <laughs> I'll tell you. Um, 
I'm getting my steps in, but it's a lot of it's a lot of standing in one place, and mm-hmm. I'm just I'm not getting the the Pokemon Go steps that I got at the bay. Right. If I don't get this good drift either. Let no. me tell you, at the Bay Calgary downtown, I was hatching like two, three eggs a shift. It was, <laughs> it was pretty stellar. <laughs> Not so much here though. That's too bad. Oh well. Um, but yeah, I can play Pokemon in the morning, but I'm usually trying to do like other household chores. Mm. And damn it, adulthood. Yep. I know, like Always it's getting in the way of me playing with Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you guys have interest in getting to the uh, the main topic that we wanted to discuss this episode? I I did like I enjoyed that divergence a lot because yeah. I I hadn't heard what Nick was doing, but I would like to get to the topic that we all wanted to equally discuss <laughs> with enthusiasm <laughs> and vigor. So, what I'm going to say, I I really wanted. To, first of all, this show could be called what's Elon Musk up to this week? Like this future chat could have that name and nobody would even really notice the difference. Um, but well, wait, basically does Elon I Musk tried... like ISO 17025? He is not. Do we know that he doesn't like it? Cause it seems like something well, he would be into. I'm sure he does like it, but well, I mean, speaking of what Elon Musk is up to this week, other than what we actually wanted to talk about SpaceX did have a scheduled launch this morning and they scrubbed it and? due to some kind of sensor issue. So maybe that was an ISO issue. Mm. There you go. Although I doubt it, but maybe, yeah. Yeah, it's it's possible, but unlikely. ISO's everywhere, so they might have ISO stuff. Oh yeah, going I'm on. sure there there are ISO checks that they do. Like I think ISO nine thousand one can apply to almost anything, mm-hmm. but seventeen oh two five is analytical laboratories. Right. I think. Well, I see ISO 9001 on every truck that drives down the street, so (laughs) it must be fairly widely applicable. Oh, man, I didn't even tell you guys about, like, checking balances. That's another good story. (laughs) Should have an ISO 17025 corner in every (laughs) show. (laughs) I, I honestly, at the start of every show, would not mind you describing some technical aspect of your job. That strikes me as kind of interesting. Also, I pour a lot of greases and everything gets greasy, Mm. except as I was reprimanded for yesterday or two days ago, they're not greases because greases are a very specific thing in our testing laboratory. (laughs) It's oily, (laughs) not greasy. (laughs) You're basically a fry cook. That's what you're saying. That's all I'm hearing from this. Nick's basically a fry cook. How did you know? I'm just, I'm heating up the oils. I'm watching for crackle. Sometimes you just, you dip a French fry in there and you hope it comes out all right. I mean, and yep. see these, you get hungry in the lab. It's mm-hmm. it's a thing that happens. The calibrations and quality checks is just Nick shoving fries into his yeah. mouth. Now, now, this is a solid back of oil. <laughs> I don't. T- it doesn't taste shitty at all. No, no, no. This is a good one. Good potatoes too. Very clean. Uh oh, guys, we have a breach. All the fries made after ten a.m. are no good. I'm gonna eat them. Sorry. <laughs> Could we not just throw them out? Do you want to lose your ISO certification? All right, we're eating them. Everyone, undo a belt loop. <laughs> Audit time. Audit time. (laughs) (laughs) 
So uh. to, to give you, the listeners, some background on what happened here, I tried valiantly to assign some homework this week for Mike and Nick about what Elon Musk has been up to, and specifically the new company he started, which is called Neuralink. And so I posted this very, 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 very long article in our notes and specifically said, hey, you guys, do you want to do an entire show dedicated to this topic? I think it's super interesting. And there's all you'd have to do is read this incredibly long. Like I'm looking at the article right now in, in Chrome and on the desktop, the scroll bar is like honestly a centimeter long. Like it's such a long article. Now, um, in defense of the article, there are a lot of comics in it. There, there are a lot of pictures, yes. Height. Uh, so, so yes, there are a lot of words. There are a lot of pictures. There's also a lot of background, like in getting to, we'll get to the topic of what the company actually does, but there's a lot of background on the way the brain works, the way the brain evolved, uh, neuroscience in general, kind of rudimentary brain interfaces, things like cochlear implants, which I was fascinated to learn more about all these things, but, um, this all kind of gets back to something like a bit of background before we start talking about the article itself is the site that it's on, which is called Wait But Why. And it's a guy, this guy named Tim Urban, who has been writing on the internet for a really long time and writes really thoughtful pieces. I'm con like, I'm, I'm subscribed to him. It's what he's one of the RSS feeds that I actually keep up with. And he was asked a while ago by Elon Musk to do a piece on, I believe the first one he did was on Tesla. So he went and visited the factory, talked with Elon, did a huge interview, did a really long piece on Tesla. So Elon apparently really likes this guy because he asked him to do this, gave him all this access. And then he did the same thing for SpaceX. He did the same thing with artificial intelligence in, I'm not sure if it was specifically, he was asked to do it by Elon Musk or kind of talked uh, with him about it before doing it, but he did involve Elon. Elon was involved in the discussion and creation of the piece. And now basically the, the very first panel, uh, the comic panel of this uh, piece starts off with Tim Urban, the guy from Wait But Why, getting a phone call from Elon Musk. So Elon Musk just calls up this, this writer and says, hey, I like we've worked for together before in the past. I'm starting a new company and I want you to learn about it and then write about it. I feel so like this, it wasn't actually Elon that called him. No, I, it honestly, I, I actually believe that. Elon seems like the kind of guy that would do, like, he's the unorthodox kind of, I don't want to say imbalanced, like unbalanced mentally CEO, but he's like, he's not a particularly great speaker. He doesn't really have charisma as a speaker, but he's obviously brilliant and like really good at learning and picks things up quickly and does things kind of off the beaten path. And so I definitely believe he actually picked up the phone and just started that conversation. I don't know. Having, I can't remember if I've actually done this or not, but it's usually like the secretary That's calls what, you up yeah, and says, like an executive assistant. Blah, blah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, okay. So maybe it's not Elon Perhaps Musk. Perhaps we're getting lost in the weeds. Maybe it's not Elon Musk dialing the phone because I'm sure he doesn't actually dial phones at all anymore. But <laughs> what I mean is, he, Elon said, even if there was like what are you a secretary implying, made the call and then patched him through just to make sure that he was available and all that. Are you implying he already has Neuralink? Yeah, exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't change the fact that Elon reached out to him and said, hey, write this piece. It wasn't Tim Urban okay. like pestering him to give him more stuff to write about. Okay. And so the main thrust of this company, I'll, I'll try to give a little background since Mike, you read some of it and found it interesting. 
Nick didn't read any of it, which is fine, but um But we know we know where it's at. Yeah, so (laughs) basically fine, but we know where it's at. Uh the, the, the goal of Neuralink as a company is to build what Elon Musk described, Elon and Tim, I guess, I'm not sure who actually kind of coined this phrase, uh, something what, what they're calling a wizard hat and basically enabling, trying to enable what I'm going to call what we would think of as magic. So basically sufficiently advanced technology from right now that we can't, we think of it as science fiction. And so if you've ever heard of cochlear implants, basically they're, they're a, basically a series of chips and electrodes that are implanted around your cochlea, the part of your ear that lets you hear, and along with some computer circuitry and all that, it's basically a hearing aid that converts the vibrations that you hear and interpret as sound into sound that can be picked up by your brain. And what Neuralink aims to be is that concept, but on a much finer resolution and applied to the entire brain, the entire nervous system. And so the reason that I wanted to talk about this is because I think there's a lot of kind of fascinating ideas that go into this leap in technology, this leap in logic. And it's kind of bridging science and technology really, really well in a way that while it seems like science fiction, it's the kind of science fiction that can enable actual progress. Like the reason that our cell phones look the way they do today is because of what science fiction thought they should look like, like communication devices thought they should look like, uh, like science fiction writers thought they should look like back in the sixties and seventies, fifties, sixties, seventies, when, when these kinds of things were like, there was no way that that was actually a real thing. It was like, wow, these tricorders they have on Star Trek. That's the coolest thing ever. Too bad we can't have that. And then suddenly within a hundred years, we have these incredibly advanced devices. And so it's that same kind of idea, but applied to the brain being able to interface with computer systems. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that we can unpack in this article. Mike, did you have anything in your kind of synopsis based reading of it that really jumped out at you in that way? I got through the nervous system evolution part and by Mm -hmm. then I was pretty much done. So then I skipped ahead looking for something that did a bit of a summary of what it was and couldn't find it. So, and then, uh, yeah, like what you described as like the cochlear implant thing that I didn't get to that point in the article, if that was even brought up, but that makes sense for what he's trying to do. Mm. And I kind of got that idea, but I wasn't able to find any sort of good illustration or, or explanation for it. Okay. You um, skipped over it then. I, it I must there. have. I did a control left for Musk and went to the <laughs> first hit. And that's <laughs> where I got to. Um, but so like, what's the application for this? Like, so, so cochlear implant for people who are hard of hearing, mm-hmm. the yeah. Neuralink is for who? Well, the Neuralink is for, it's, it's pitched as being for everybody eventually the same way that like SpaceX rocket launches could theoretically be used for 
like reusable rockets could theoretically be used for really fast uh, transcontinental continental flights or like suborbital flight to go through the atmosphere way faster, like to cross, to do like a, a, a flight from say the U S to like United Arab Emirates in a couple of hours or in, in an hour, instead of taking the better part of a day, it, there, there's a there's a real time kind of goal that they're working towards, but there's also a far off goal that they have in mind. And so the the main the main goal of Neuralink is to have better interfaces between the brain and computers. So the the long term goal I'll talk about later, but the short term goal, like something like a cochlear implant, which already exists, for people who aren't familiar, and so I ju- I just learned it from this article, a cochlear implant enables people who can't hear whether it's whether they're born that way or whether they get in an accident or something it enables people to hear sound again but the way it works like if you've ever looked at a cochlea it's kind of a spiral shaped it's almost like it's like a hollow spiral tube and so sound waves come in and the way because they're because this tube narrows as it goes around in a spiral dip, sounds of different frequencies penetrate it to different depths and that's how we interpret different frequencies of sound that are coming in. And obviously, the, it's like it's the human body and we're a biological system. So we can hear very fine frequency distinctions between anywhere from about 20 hertz to about 20,000 hertz. That's the general range that's accepted for human hearing. But we can hear all frequencies within that range. So what a cochlear implant does is it basically picks around 10 spots on that spiral and places an an electrode of some kind like some kind of interface some kind of electronics there to let you hear a few frequencies in the human hearing range and so you when you hear you're not going to hear hd crystal clear speech you're going to hear almost it's kind of a robotic type voice because you're only hearing specific frequencies you're not hearing the actual sound in all its fidelity but it's obviously magnitude orders of magnitude better than not being able to hear at all and so the first goal is basically to miniaturize and make a lot easier to manufacture the, the technologies that would enable uh, basically a high-def cochlear implant. So putting sensors, putting thousands or tens of thousands of sensors on the cochlea to let you hear the full fidelity of what a human should be expected to hear. Mm. And so the same thing with like a retinal implant. Right now, you it it actually is relatively good but obviously our eye has like millions i don't actually know the number but it seems like it should be millions of like rods and cones uh parts of the eye that let you see in the humongous resolution that you do see if you get a retinal implant it's much less high resolution and there's much many fewer colors that you're able to see and the goal of that technology would be to, again, make it vivid color, like make it lots of different colors and to give you just as wide, just as good vision as if you had normally functioning eyes. And then the, so that would be the near term goal in the next, say, 10 or 20 years would be to make those kind of medical replacement devices more high resolution and more like the actual experience and then taking it one step or I guess many steps further down the road eventually having that but applied like 
mapping a one-to-one or as close to -to one-to-one as possible between human, the brain's neurons and a computer so that you can actually map the entire human brain and interface with the entire human brain in the same way that those implants would, which would enable you to do a whole bunch of really crazy things. And it opens up a whole lot of bandwidth between a brain and a computer in a way that's not possible right now. Right now, the fastest thing we can do, unless you're a very fast typist, is probably speaking to a computer by voice. But the bandwidth of that is extremely low. And so the, the, the basic goal of Neuralink is to enable, literally not in a science fiction way, but enable selective telepathy, basically. Being able to communicate with to, with a network, with a computer network, without having to speak, like basically just by having to think about it. Being able to control the Internet of Things with a, the human brain and no, no physical manipulation. Right. So it's interfacing, it's allowing an interfacing with a computer by translating back and forth in ways that the brain and the computer can understand. Yes. The same way they so, tried to map the brain yeah. response with like, is it MRIs? FMRIs are usually used, yeah. Yeah, to see what parts of the brain light up and see if you can put contacts or electrodes or whatever on those points to be that type of communication interface, which isn't practical. No one wants to go around wearing a helmet that is trying to read your your brain response. And it's very granular and Mm. and very, in the same way, speech is probably not very high bandwidth either. Yeah, You can say, oh, this person's upset, but that doesn't really do much it doesn't say they're upset because they want that door opened yeah right like so to take that yeah like you said next thousand steps forward mm. this is going to take a lot of a lot of research and obviously it's, it's ambitious but there must be some level of doability yeah. if musk is willing to to invest in it mm. so it, it's basically another example that they use uh i don't know if you've ever seen but amputees now are able to get artificial limbs that like especially hands particularly hands that basically connected to the brain via simple electrodes and you are actually in some cases in in kind of the more advanced side of things once it's hooked up to your brain once it's learned how your brain maps different movements and the motor cortex um tim urban describes in the article in great detail how the brain maps these things and how we know kind of where needs to, where is stimulated when your brain thinks, okay, move my arm or move my fingers or whatever. So when you get an artificial limb added that has some level of movement, you can actually bite, you can actually train the machine to respond if to, so that if you think close my hand, close my artificial hand, that your brain, the brain, your brain will actually send those brain waves to like just spread around the system and the machine can interpret that specific thought as, okay, I'm going to close this mechanical hand. And so it's trying to apply that entire thing. Like in theory, as long as there's no physical, like if, if someone's had their spinal cord severed, for instance, there's no, there's nothing physically wrong with any of their limbs, but their brain can't communicate with them. So they're paralyzed and they can't move but in theory if you could you could restore that movement if you're able to pass those signals over that gap 
And that's what they're kind of looking to do either on a small scale in the case of one lost limb or of an entire body in the case of um, kind of more almost like exoskeleton kind of things that they're working on now. And that kind of an exoskeleton is kind of the opposite extreme where instead of making a bionic Nick, I don't, I don't understand why you're laughing. This is like, no, sorry. I'm, I'm reading the article. Oh yes. The, <laughs> Tim Urban's quite funny. I, may I, may I just read yeah, the of course. bit that I'm laughing uncontrollably at, uh, Win the battle in your head for both sides, yada yada. Your limbic system isn't making you eat your ninth starburst candy in a row because it's a dick. It's making you eat it because it thinks that A, any fruit that's any fruit that's sweet and densely chewy must be super rich in calories, and B, you might not find food again for the next four days, so it's a good idea to load up on high calorie food whenever the opportunity arises. Meanwhile, your prefrontal prefrontal cortex is just watching in horror like why are we doing this <laughs> it's so accurate yeah it really is <laughs> see the thing is i oh. knew when i was when i was giving this as homework that neither of you were going to read it but i know that it's also really interesting and even if you like i'm not necessarily in agreement that we're going to have this technology within the next couple of generations even but it strikes me as a very logical next step given what we've been able to develop so far. And in the, in the article, he likens it several times to right now we have the ENIAC. We have the computer of the 1930s, 1940s, where we have this room-sized thing that is on order of magnitude faster than humans at specific tasks in computation, but isn't practical for anyone to actually have just as a regular person. But... Fast forward 60 or 70 years, and everyone has this magic computer in their pocket that doesn't need to be plugged in except for once a day, and you can basically communicate with anyone anywhere and do more... Con he describes it. He says you can fill the, the Empire State Building with people sitting there doing math, even if they each had calculators. It, um, you can do so much more computation with a modern computer that just using a Google spreadsheet than you could with a bunch of people filling even the Empire State Building, even if they had calculators. Like it's just so much, it's so much more immensely fast with a computer. And so applying that same idea, going from the ENIAC to the iPhone or to the Galaxy, the new Galaxy S8 that was just announced. I don't want to be biased, iPhone versus Android. It's that, Thank it's you. comparing that from what we have now in terms of um, bio-machine interfaces to what the future of that logically becomes once it's miniaturized once it's made cheaper once it's made available to everyone it seems like technology operates in a system of punctuated equilibrium kind of and if we all as long remember, as you explain that term i'm okay with it <laughs> I, I don't know if we all remember our our biology or evolution courses but uh is basically when you have evolution that is stages of essentially a plateau where things are kind of just status quo and then a major shift happens due to one reason or another mm -hmm. and then that's when the advancement happens and then it's another state of kind of plateau right so like in technology for the longest time you had whatever you know type of computer and then all of a sudden it's like oh let's make it mobile and then you had laptops 
right? Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, let's make these laptops faster. It's like, oh, let's make them more handheld. So you have like tablets. So you have, you know, five years of just tablets that are essentially all the same, except for maybe a bit faster chips and GPUs and whatever. Um, and then you can look at the same with phones, right? So like each type thing, they're not constantly year by year advancing the same way. There's kind of these leaps forward mm-hmm. where it's usually one company that decides to invest and, and make it better. And then everyone else kind of does the same following it. And then yep. they're all kind of back there. So it seems like this is an effort to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know what medical science technology is like, but I think if there's something anywhere close to being like this, we would have heard about it. And I think what you're saying about prosthetics is probably the most accurate yeah. kind of a manifestation of that concept but i think even that is more reliant upon that one-to-one mapping like we were talking about and then i think even then it's not even reading directly from the brain like my understanding of how those work is you hook up i guess electrodes or sensors or however you want to call them up to the muscles yeah, yeah. in your you know furthest reaching appendage so like at your elbow, where your arm would be, where the rest of your arm would, yeah. would come from. And then it detects the muscle contractions and relaxations that are associated with the action of opening and closing a hand. Mm-hmm. So it's not saying, oh, the brain is telling me to open my hand. It's just saying these muscles are reacting in a way as mm-hmm. if there were a hand there. And that's so I, that's what I should do with this prosthetic. Yep. Right? So, So I think even that's further away from what, elon is trying to do or just the general case of like a electronic reading the brain and interpreting that information yeah because it's still relying upon the physical uh triggers mm-hmm. to to enact whatever it is it's supposed to do right so there's a lot in this piece about kind of the way the brain is structured and one of the things like that we don't really think about especially just because we're not involved in biology is that when you do, like when you contract your hand, when you go from having your hand open to having your hand closed, you are triggering muscles. Like it's neurons that are being triggered that are sending the signal down to other neurons in your arm muscles that then contract to cause your hand to close. So there, most of the systems like you're describing, like when you're, if you get your hand amputated at the elbow, and they put an, um, what's the word? Prosthetic. What I'm looking for. Prosthetic. If they put a prosthetic forearm and hand on your body, it is. It's the muscles around there that would fire that are generally triggered. But that's kind of the the end of the neurons. Whereas what, what they're talking about doing and what is kind of rudimentarily done is thinking about moving up the neuron chain basically into your brain, into the motor cortex in order to kind of bypass any musculature that's involved in. And there are very, very simple interfaces that actually do let you there. You can basically train a computer that whenever, if, if you install the electrodes properly, basically on your brain at this point, where if you think up a thousand times or 10,000 times, if you think up, you can eventually train the computer to interpret the thought of up in a brain to an actual digital thing being a switch being flipped and you can train it. You can train it in very simple kind of vague generic ways to like on a very surface level, 
interpret like cardinal directions, for instance. So you right. can say up, left, down, or right. But you can't say like, oh, move this mouse cursor to this spot. You can right. just say move this cursor left. Right. Or yes and no is another good example yeah, of, exactly. of that kind yeah. of thing. And I think that would be fairly applicable to interface with the computer because a lot of yep. it is binary choices like yes mm -hmm. or no, or like you said, up or down, left and right. Yeah. But yeah, you can't say like, oh, edit this Photoshop file so that the pixels are all yeah. nice and smooth Shop or this. whatever. Yeah, right? <laughs> like you can't, I, I, I don't see it getting to that point and I hope I'm wrong, but I think like if it's relying on that one-to-one -one mapping on brain response to an action, like you're never going to, that that's not a realistic or practical implementation right. of that. Mm-hmm. And so one of the main takeaways that I got from this piece is the idea that we are now kind of smack in, in the middle of an age where we don't, like for a very, very long time in humanity and society, the only way knowledge was passed was from one person to another through speech and then through writing. And we now have these computers around that enable us to communicate and to solve problems much more quickly and efficiently than we ever could. And so uh, Tim Urban makes the argument that we are already like our smartphone is already basically a bionic extension of ourselves. And it's just currently external to the body. And we can like the, the separation anxiety that people feel with their when their phones are either they lose the network or they have no battery or whatever. That anxiety that you feel is akin to losing a part of yourself now. And once the brain gets used to having that permanent connection to a network, once you lose that network, it's like being stranded in the middle of a forest. It's like being literally removed from your network and taking that one step further. Basically, what he's trying to to suggest is that all that Elon Musk is saying is we want, we want to bring that computer interface that is currently outside your body and put it inside your body and hook it up directly to the brain, bypassing clumsy human thumbs and bypassing the, the huge bandwidth loss that gets lost between your thoughts and what actually comes out of your mouth or comes out of your fingers into a keyboard. Um, yeah, like, I mean, on the a note on a phone being a bionic extension mm -hmm. like i believe it's been shown that we actually think differently than our prede predecessors a generation ago like we tend not to remember things mm -hmm. so much as we remember how to find things yeah because like just in the internet age if you can find something it's not really worth remembering mm -hmm. unless you're using it umpteen times a day yeah and it's, even then that will come naturally anyway. It's not an intentional learning at that point. Right. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, you'll just start to remember. Like for a while, I remembered everything about platinum because I was just doing calculations with it every single day. Mm -hmm. So it just rolled off the top of my head. But I mean, it's, it's even like university exams. Like I'm sure we two of us remember David Bryce. <laughs> At least two. At least. <laughs> in all of his in all of his exams, he said, you know, when I was studying, they made me remember this formula. But honestly, I do this for a living, and any time I need this formula, I look it up. 
So why would I make you remember it mm-hmm. when you're just going to look it up in the real world? But it's like, you know, it's even more so than that. Yep. And so I don't know, I'm having skimmed this pretty quickly. I'm really excited about the Neuralink. Mm-hmm. I, I think I share some of Mike's skepticism in that. I think it might always be 50 years away to reach the true integration, but man, if you had all the knowledge of the internet at your disposal without the reliance on clumsy, fat, horrible human thumbs, Mm -hmm. my goodness gracious me. Is that what it's setting out to do though? I didn't get it. I didn't get that. Again, I think you skipped that part. Maybe. Okay. (laughs) That's, yeah, and I, if it talked about that, then that's my fault. Did, but. did Mike skip that part, or did I just make a logical leap? That no, wasn't I think there? it was there. What, depending on what specific leap you're talking about, I, th- I heard the argument made that you just made in that. Like, okay, my interpretation of Rob, what you were saying, and my understanding of the goal of this was not to put a computer in your head, but to allow for you to communicate with computers in a way that we currently can't, in a more effortless way. Well, it's by putting. A computer in your head basically by mapping your brain neuron by neuron or as close as to that as possible through like basically basically okay, nick's next illustration just now was being able to do a google search without doing anything yes, just think that, think of the google search and the information proposed. comes streaming into your head and all of a sudden you are aware of that yeah result that's is what's that proposed what the, yeah and now I'm, I'm even more skeptical now because that so, sounds ridiculous. Right. So, but the concept when computers were first invented and you'd have a transistor that was the size of, I don't know, a lunch pail, that was impossible. It was impossible to think that it, this would ever become a thing. But then as the technology shrunk down, it became more and more possible. And so we're at the point right now where the kind of the cutting edge of brain machine interfaces is like a postage stamp sized 100 electrode little chip. We can't really envision what it would be like if you could have these tiny, like literally nanoscale electrodes that connect to your brain. But now but we're if, talking like matrix level crap. Yes, exactly. Where you like yeah. plug in and learn Kung Fu. Like yep. that's... You don't even have to plug in. It's all wireless. Well, no, I, I, no, I know. <laughs> Bluetooth 4.0. I 6.0 <laughs> by that point. <laughs> no, but like, I, I don't know. So that I agree that it seems not only far off, but very difficult to envision. But I think this piece, if you read it cover to cover, it presents a very good case for the fact that it's possible and that we're just on the kind of first few steps towards it. And we, it's true that we may never get there, but I don't think that means it isn't worth trying because we've had so much success with miniaturizing technology, with advancing technology based on our, a better understanding of the way the brain works. Can you imagine like the ethical implications of having a computer in your brain? Can you name one? <laughs> Just having uninhibited access to information at any point assuming how that is that's that how it's working how is that different from twitter because you can take away because <laughs> you can take away people's devices and ability to access the internet but if it's built into them 
so then that, that's opening up a whole you're saying if someone thing. commits cyber crime they should be removed from the network temporarily what? or permanently what do you talk about cyber crime that would be what? like jail equivalent just cut cut yeah. off from the network and they'd be like, be like oh my god i'm cage. so stupid <laughs> they changed the wi-fi password <laughs> so well i'm 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 confused as to what ethical conundrum that you're referring to then i don't know i just feel that if someone's around and and maybe it's just like a psychological uneasiness mm-hmm. where at anyone at any point because right now like you have phones that give cues that people are doing something on their phone right like looking something up or reading or mm-hmm. whatever but if you're just talking to someone you don't know if they're i i guess it's sim- most of them are like the google glass thing right that people's okay. reaction to people having google glass like what are you doing like you have google glass like are you videoing me right now are you like reading twitter are you taking a picture of me and sending it to your friends like Mm-hmm. obviously google glass doesn't have the capability because it's all voice activated still or or at least you have to go and move yeah. your eyes around or i yeah. don't even know how you interface with it really but there's a few different ways yeah yeah so but with this you're taking to a whole another level again depending on the if there is even like a ui or if it's just a part of you yeah i i don't know so basically, it sounds like what you're trying to say is there are, it's not, you're not saying there are privacy concerns. No, it's not privacy. I just, I, I understand that it might take a while for people to get used to it. But there's no, I don't see any major hurdle that would need to be cleared in order for development to happen slowly over time. Like, you know, we're not going to suddenly wake up and have this in your brain. It might be that five or six generations from now, someone, the first person gets this implanted in them, but it's not going to be, we're not going to wake up next week. And Apple is saying, we now introducing the eye brain wake up tomorrow and you will like opt in hit accept and you'll have this in your brain like they're not it's not going to be like that it's going to be very slow it would be like encountering alien life it's going to happen gradually mm-hmm. right it's not going to be a big surprise the next day that something is going to happen like the leap in technology will happen and then at some point later the first person will get it in their brain and then at some point later five percent or whatever ten percent of people will have it and then in theory if everything works out Everyone will have it. Maybe it will start with something like the prosthetics case where it's like, oh, we already, that's already normal for us. Even though, right. again, like two generations ago, I've been like, what? Yeah. So, right. So it's like, okay. And then you just evolve from there into more and more applications until it's a consumer level product where it's being used in certain specific cases. And yeah, you just get used to it. And right. so by the time you have it and you're just, cruising the internet from your brain is not that big of a deal Mm -hmm. i feel like with widespread adoption like we will truly be able to reach the full potential of humanity like i just keep thinking about like well what would this be like and i was like well clearly everyone would have the same access to the same information which is at that point almost limitless and the problem will just be solved optimally 
Mm-hmm. I feel like. Can you imagine how politics will be? <laughs> like, would we even have disagreement anymore with like just access to every inf- all the information everywhere? Just be like, oh, well, clearly this would be the optimal outcome. It does seem like over time. Obviously, there, there, there actually is discussion in this piece about how, in theory, if you have an interface between a computer and your memory, that it almost seems like false memories could be implanted and like propaganda could be kind of downloaded to your system without you realizing it. And suddenly you have learned that the Holocaust didn't happen, for instance. Like, that's that's the kind of the extreme example. You need, like, a firewall. Well, yeah, exactly. And it's, it'd be really hard to do on such a massive level. Like, you really, 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 really wouldn't want that to happen because it's very easy visually for... First of all, it's really easy for the brain to be tricked in retrospect to look back on an event, on memories, and falsely remember them. But if you had actual false memories implanted in your brain, it would be really, really difficult to convince yourself that didn't happen. Oh, man, guys, I changed my brain firewall, and all of a sudden I remember all the hot singles near me. (laughs) And it's like, I just, I know a spam bot's been in here. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think, like, the system isn't isn't going to improve humanity on its own. And there are problems, but they're problems that already exist now. They would just be, they're, they're society problems and not system problems. So one of the things that I really wanted to get to is the only thing that I actually wrote down after, as a result of reading this, other than kind of posting that I wanted to talk about it, is a growing frustration that I've been feeling lately about my my own bandwidth in communicating with devices. So I mentioned earlier that I already kind of think of my phone as linked to me. And like you said, I don't have to store information. Like it's basically my my short-term memory is the internet. So I don't have to remember any facts if I can go and look them up. And I've been getting frustrated lately that it almost seems like that... I'm getting frustrated that this future that I'm describing that's described in this article isn't here yet before I even read this article where I'm sitting there and I'm looking at my phone and I'm like, I really want to send a very detailed message to Mike about some topic and, or I like, I'm, I'm sitting there at work and I have a solution to a problem that I'm working on, like an algorithm or something pops into my head and I go, Oh man, that's the perfect solution to this problem. And I look at my computer and I go, Oh man, I'm going to have to type that all out now. (laughs) Like, I feel like my bandwidth to interface with machines is very limited. And so I'll look at my phone thinking about the message that I want to write. And I'm like, the most efficient way for me to do this kind of thought wise is to dictate it. I really don't want to sit there and type this whole thing out because it would just be so much faster if I could just think it and have the words appear and be sent to you. Uh, have you guys ever felt that way? Like I've been feeling that with increasing frequency yeah. lately. Well, I feel like we were talking about this last week or the week before when we were talking about programming yeah. and how like for me, once I solve a problem in my head, mm-hmm. it's like, I, I'm like, oh, I'm done. But it's like, but now I actually have to do it. 
right? And it's it's kind of that same thing. It's like, yeah, I I think it's something I want to say to you, but it's like, oh, but I have to type it. It's not really worth saying it. But in mm-hmm. my head, it's been solved or it's been said, right? Mm-hmm. So now I I definitely know know that feeling. I don't know if this has been a shared experience, but I found since like an update or two ago, Google's keyboard has gotten significantly worse. Like swipe it, has gotten worse at understanding what I'm trying to say. It's always been bad. <laughs> and so, okay, well, I've personally experienced worse results lately. And so I just, after typing the same thing for the third time and trying to override autocorrect, I'm like, why can't I just, like, I don't want to type this out because that takes longer than swiping. And I don't want to talk it to, mm-hmm. or I don't want to use voice recognition because then I can't get the punctuation quite right. Yeah. And why can't I just think this into the phone? Yeah. So I, it's, I, it's kind almost of almost right there with you. Not quite. Yeah. I, I think that a lot of people feel that when I have an idea for code or something like that, I'm always excited to take the next step and see what the implementation does. But yeah. I think that's my only difference here. Yeah. I really thought that I was kind of unique in this experience. And I wonder, because the three of us are more technical than the average person, I would say. Yeah, and two of you. No, you're more technical Nick, than the average. We are on. more technical than you. Give yourself some credit. You have a snowball on your desk. Go on. You're more technical than, than <laughs> the average person. I also, in our break room at work, we have a device running Ubuntu. Mm-hmm. Walked by and went, wow, it's sweet. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> I, I'm really glad that other people are sharing that. And I wonder if other people also share that kind of feeling that if there was a higher bandwidth connection between the brain and their device, that they would feel more at home using it. And it, I never felt, I honestly have had a smartphone for what, eight or nine years now i've not felt that until this year it seems like at at first when smartphones first came out there was a very limited amount of things you could do and it seems like that amount the things are just getting more and more and that's what's kind of prompting this but i i'm not actually sure what changed except typing with my fat stupid thumbs (laughs) it do you think it's possible that it is related to voice search suddenly being better because it's often conceived as like our brain our thought process is often like a voice it's a voice in your head when you're thinking you're you it's possible to actually think almost with language as opposed to just kind of trying to convey thoughts i wonder if the advent of voice recognition actually getting good enough to use puts us in that point where we're like all right well if i can communicate with this by voice why can't i just think it why do i have to actually physically say the words if i'm already thinking them hey guys you know what they should have they should have this thing they should have this thing where instead of having to like transcribe voice to text you can just send like a message of your voice (laughs) almost almost like voice uh, like a voice message or like voice mail or something that'd be that'd be kind of crazy Whoa. see the the problem that i have with that is that in terms of reading in terms of receiving information i would rather get it in text because li- having to listen puts you at a disadvantage 
but having to type puts you at an at a disadvantage as well like if you're on the you just, if you're on the sending end you're on the same level as the geese i hear out there just honking <laughs> at each other like just just maliciously honking at each other do, do you understand what i mean mike no i know i just I think I, you, you you want to have your cake and eat it too. No, you you wanted to make a voicemail joke, and I appreciate that. But thank you. <laughs> it's easier. Like I agree. It's, in terms of speaking, it's easier to speak a message than it is to type it. But in terms of receiving a message, it's much easier to re- read it than it is to hear it. So, I would argue. So we're we're at an impasse. I think. No, I don't think we are at an impasse because we're waiting. We're waiting for voice assistants to become good enough to make that possible on a regular basis like you don't always want to say things out loud into a computer that's why thinking them into a computer would be so much better and you don't always want to you don't always have the capacity to be able to listen to something but you usually have the capacity to be able to read something i've actually noticed a problem when i start talking about something i'm really really excited about on the podcast Mm -hmm. and it just like i start to fumble with my words just because i'm so into it can you imagine the future of podcasting if it was just the three of us thinking together for like 45 minutes, half an hour, and then someone else just got to like, for lack of a better word, hear those thoughts? Yeah. Ah, nice. I those, honestly... Those three stooges. Mike, I'm, I'm sure you didn't get to the part where he describes a conversation if everyone had a Neuralink installed in their brain. There's four people sitting around a table and they're just thinking together. Like, I spend so much of my day in my thoughts that imagining another person in there it's like that's fascinating to me i would love to be able to have a thought conversation with someone because it would happen so much faster back and forth and so the, the the comic is drawn there's a bunch of people sitting around a table just reacting to things that are said like when you hear when you think of something funny in your head and then laugh out loud you you seem like an insane person can you imagine a four person like a podcast recording happening inside people's minds where they just start laughing for no reason out loud it i would love the ability to be able to have even a conversation with one other person just via thoughts without having to think like the amount of the amount of time it would take to actually think with someone about something is so much less than it would be to talk about it or to kind of communicate back and forth via text or via voice or however a note on that just something i copied and pasted from the article Mm. he questioned so um will everyone be able to know what i'm thinking he assured me they would not people won't be able to read your thoughts you'll have to will it if you don't will it it doesn't happen just like if you don't will your mouth to talk it doesn't talk phew Mm. i was like disagree yeah sometimes It just pops right out. I'm like, what did I just say? Why did I just say that to people? Yeah. yeah. Or when you're gonna type, or when you're typing a message, and you're like, oh no, I'm not gonna send that. But then you accidentally press send, mm. or you send it to like the wrong person, and it's like, oh. <laughs> or when press enter to <laughs> send is mistake. on, and you thought press yeah. enter to send wasn't on. Yeah. And like so many potential employers have gotten like, hey, so and so, comma. <laughs> Then the next message, <laughs> and now press enter to send is off. <laughs> oh, you'd yeah. think I'd get better at it. Maybe remember, if I had a Neuralink. Nick, do you remember Google Wave? Do when we I? would sit there and like that was the next level. It wasn't press enter to send. It was like type to send. And we would have like fragmented conversations back and forth, just sending like bits of sentence fragments to each other. 
I don't like, remember that. It, it, we could an- you could answer someone's question before they had finished asking it. Mm. You'd start typing like, "Oh, what's your favorite color?" and they would oh, start answering before you even finished. Because I remember, like, <laughs> I remember joking around with Carolyn is what I remember. Mm. Like starting to send something and then dialing it yeah. back. <laughs> or like, <laughs> Carolyn, I have something really, really important to tell you. <laughs> and then just deleting it all. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, um, uh, the, the future does seem like it is kind of that. I don't know if have either of you ever tried to have a conversation in a Google Doc back at, like with one other person who's also on it and being able to no. see what the other person's writing. It's very interesting. And it uh, my experience has been that it always turns out that if someone was trying to read it or if you're trying to structure the way the conversation went later on, it's very weird because you're kind of you're constantly like you'll start writing something and the other person will start writing something back and then you're like, "Oh wait, now I want to ask a different, a slightly different thing. So you like, do you go back up to the original statement and backspace, backspace, backspace and type over it? Or do you start on the next line and like enter something new? It's, it's a very weird thing. And I think that could end up being one of the hardest parts of actually communicating. If you had a system in place like this, where it's just hard to organize your thoughts. And so if you're communicating with just them, it might be that, words don't actually it doesn't actually make sense to use words when you're thinking it makes more sense to use like pictures or feelings or different senses like the the art the part of the article nick that you just mentioned about starburst and your limbic system being at odds with your prefrontal (laughs) cortex oh god yes (laughs) can you like they describe being able to treat addiction like physical addiction by giving you the same brain stimulation that you would get from a drug without it. So you can cut the physical dependency on it. But can you imagine if you could just trigger your brain's pleasure center via thinking about it, how unproductive some people might become if you could just do that? I don't know, but like potentially not safe for work, conversation following but like (laughs) i actually think probably one of our greatest strengths as a species is our ability to do things not just for the sake of pleasure because like otherwise with the advent of the internet why do we not all just spend our entire day inside masturbating Mm -hmm. like (laughs) yeah absolutely thanks mike (laughs) but like rob's like amen brother (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I, other basic instincts <laughs> yeah, so also like... fit in there. It's not just sex, but like food gets in there. Like there are basic needs that we have and that's one of them, but there are others. <laughs> yeah. But like, I feel, I, I mean, obviously I'm sure that there will be some people abusing the, the pleasure centered <laughs> button. Title. But... <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't there like an experiment done on monkeys where they had a button that triggered oh, yeah. mice. the pleasure center and they just, was it mice? Oh, okay. I yeah. And they did so. that till they starved to death, didn't yeah, they? Yeah. They just yeah. like, they loved that button. Oh boy. <laughs> I think it was specifically an orgasm button. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. If not, it was like a dopamine hit button. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a weird world out there. It sure is. 
I, but there are honestly, people outside. Yes, there are. <laughs> I feel like... So, again, if you guys have this, let me know. But oftentimes, if I'm engrossed in a conversation, even if it's a conversation, sometimes especially if it's a conversation I'm really interested in, my mind will suddenly drift off on a tangent and I'll start thinking about something totally unrelated to what the per like the person is talking and I'm like off in the weeds thinking about something related to it, but tangential. And I would love it if we could be involved in that. Like if we could gladly hop off into this tangential meadow together in thought, as opposed to me having to like 30 seconds later, pull myself back into the conversation and try to remember what I try to figure out from context, what I missed. Just, Oh God. Oh God. The conversations moved on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you're like, Oh, I want to bring something up, but we're now way past it. And it would be wholly inappropriate for me to bring it up now. And I'm in, I'm in those weeds right now. Cause I want to, I want to start typing something, but I also want to talk to you about something. <laughs> It's very difficult because we only have a couple minutes left in the show anyways. What are you um, going to do? No, it's almost like if you're communicating on the on the speed of thought, it's almost like communication just breaks down because you need you almost need that buffer of speaking or typing or mm -hmm. organizing your thoughts into something to deliver coherently. Right. But it does seem like you wouldn't like obviously it would come in very in handy for brainstorming if you could have a group thought conversation oh, but in gosh. general people have a lot of terrible thoughts well yeah I'm among them yeah you wouldn't have to necessarily share all of those thoughts but it seems like you if you were having a thought conversation it would be different than having a thought brainstorm a thought conversation would be like responding to someone directly with thoughts as opposed to just throwing out everything you're thinking into the ether of that conversation they strike me as two different things and you would be able to compile your thoughts in the same way you are now. You'd be able to kind of shut yourself off from the internet for the most part, maybe pulling facts or pulling information. But for the most part, you're just thinking to yourself and then come, come to someone with those thoughts that you've been collecting, but then communicate them to someone else very quickly as opposed to having to type it out or, or talk it out over a couple of hours. Hmm. Podcasting would be dead as a medium if everyone could just have thought conversations. Hey, hey. You could listen to the three of us and someone would like chuckle for 30 seconds and that would be like the entirety of the podcast. Yeah. Like I learned something. I laughed. I laughed a little bit. It was a good 15 <laughs> seconds of uh, thought interface I just had there. Yeah. You oh, can make your guys. show any length you want. 15 seconds. That's enough. Well, like if we could cut down on all the talking we're doing and mm. just exchange all the thoughts instantly, I feel like you could pare it down to about 30 seconds. You might lose my comedic timing, right. but and you could also lose this dead air and then <laughs> yeah, cut way was... down, way down. <laughs> Rob's audio editing already takes care of that. It really does. Are you going to cut the that? Edit, that silence is going to be nothing. Oh, man. <laughs> Perhaps we're not ready for this brave new world. No, I don't think so. So... I feel like if you have listened to this far in the episode and you have are not peaked in your has have not had your interest peaked in reading this entire thing, uh, then why are you still what, listening? Yeah, why did you, you not doing? shut this off fifteen minutes ago? My God, it's been in a, like wait an hour and a half. Approximately no, I was late getting there. Okay, 
I want to read it again. Like I'm probably going to read it again this week. I'm curious. We're going to actually read it. Yeah. If we have any follow up, I probably won't read it at all. Mike. (laughs) (laughs) All right, there, Nick. That is all the time we have this week. Do you guys have anything uh, you want to say before we go? I'm so stoked. This is like, this is like CRISPR to biology, but it's the CRISPR of thought. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Future Chat. We'll be back next week with more science and tech talk, and you can head to unwindmedia.com slash future chat for past episodes of the show and much more. And my Galaxy S7 review, which will be out this week, I promise. See you next week. Ciao. Toodaloo.